0: This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. The Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging is committed to advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, professional training, patient care, and community service. As a nonprofit organization at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, our research and educational outreach activities are made possible by the generosity of private donors. It is our vision that successful aging will be an achievable goal for everyone. To learn more, please visit our website at aging.ucsd.edu. It is such an honor to be here giving this inaugural talk in honor of my uh, beloved grandfather and grandmother about uh, an area that I feel incredibly passionate about. So thank you, everyone, for having me. Let food be thy medicine, the miraculous healing power of food. It's interesting because this is a picture of Boston University School of Medicine, where I went to medical school for four years. And subsequently, I came out to Santa Rosa in 2013, and sorry, 2010, uh, to attend Santa Rosa Family Medicine Residency. And I received a wonderful education from both Boston University School of Medicine and Santa Rosa Family Medicine Residency. But if I had to distill one, my sort of paradigm for the care of patients through my seven years of training, it really could be distilled down to one word, and that's management. I learned how to manage chronic illnesses like high blood pressure and diabetes and high cholesterol through one or more medications, if necessary. In fact, oftentimes, the more medications that I required to manage someone's condition to bring their blood pressure down to normal levels, uh, the sort of... the Bigger the pat on the back that I received, because that was a more complicated patient. So during my medical education, it was not imparted to me just how powerful food was as a healing force. My paradigm has changed, as you can see, and I thought I would share that through a story. And, And this is the story of Robert. He gave me permission to share his story. And Robert... Uh, This is a picture of him before he had successfully gone on a healthy diet. He had tried many healthy diets leading up um, to going on what's called a whole food plant-based diet. He had tried the Atkins diet. He had tried Weight Watchers. He had tried MetaFast. He had tried um, a juice diet. And each time he would lose about 30 to 40 pounds. But as most diets go, what goes down comes back up and sometimes even more. And it was around 2014 that he finally learned about what's called a whole food plant-based diet, which is what I'm going to share with you today. And prior to going on a plant-based diet, he weighed 298 pounds. His blood pressure was in the 150s over 90s. As many of you know, normal blood pressure is considered 120 over 80. So 150 over 90 is not just high, it's, it's fairly high. He was on multiple medications to manage his various conditions. He was on Zetia, which is a cholesterol-lowering medication. He was on Norvasc, which is a powerful blood pressure-lowering medication. He was on Pristique, which is an antidepressant, and Albuterol uh, for his asthmatic symptoms. He was very sedentary because he found that if he walked more than two blocks, he would become short of breath and would need to use his inhaler so as a result, he did not do very much exercise. In 2014 was when he went uh, when he learned about what's called a Whole food plant-based diet, and just started uh, doing that day after day. When I met him in 2016, this is who I met. Wow. <laughs> Two years later, 173 pounds, blood pressure in the 110s over 70s. Remember, normal blood pressure is 120 over 80, so he, he not only met normal, he was even below normal, which can be dangerous if you're on medications to get it that low, but if you have a blood pressure of 110 over 70 without medication, that is optimal. Most notable of all, though, was that he was off all medication. He was off his cholesterol-lowering medication with a cholesterol of around, total cholesterol of around 150, with normal being less than 200. As, uh, as I shared, his blood pressure was in the 110s over 70s off the Norvasc, which is a very powerful blood pressure medication. He was off his antidepressant. So I would say that many people with mood uh, disorders um, have found that they are able to get off their medication when they're healing themselves with food and healthy lifestyle. And last, he was off his asthma inhaler uh, and... When I took this picture of him when he was under my care, um, as you can see, he's got his running shoes on. He says he has so much energy from this new way of eating and this lifestyle that he has to run. And he runs over five miles per day, and he does not require the use of an inhaler. So Robert, in a way, is symbolic of my new paradigm for the care of my patients. And management is not it. It's reversal. It's reversal. Cure, prevention. And when, all is, when you do everything you can, in some cases, some people still do require medications, and then you do want to manage well. But management, in my mind, should always be the second line and not the first line. Now, people are also surprised because I have not always eaten a healthy diet. <laughs> this is me. Chubster, chubby cheeks, fat. So I had all sorts of little nicknames. But uh, this is me. I was the most overweight kid in my grade all the way up through fifth grade. Uh, in fact, this—my brother is in the audience. This is my older brother. He's sitting in the second row. And um, growing up, uh, I didn't necessarily get this way by accident. I. I partook in a lot of standard American dietary foods. So my older brother, Jonathan, when my parents would uh, go out, he had his dinner down for what he made me. It was this corned beef hash that he would, you know, kind of deep fry till it was nice and charred. A few eggs uh, with uh, those Pillsbury croissants, you know, that came in a little cylinder. I don't even know if they still sell them, but you kind of roll them up. They do? Okay, I got aff- affirmation that they do still sell these. And uh, we would make like 20 of those. So, so that would be our dinner. Um, I grew up here in San Diego. So many of you, just right down the road, is University Town Center, right? And uh, my favorite place to go um, was to get the hot dog on a stick at Orange Julius along with a Ju- large Orange Julius which I have since learned, normally I have the audience guess, but um, for the sake of time, I will tell you, a large orange Julius has 132 grams of added sugar. Now, just so you can kind of conceive of what that means, one teaspoon of sugar is four grams. So that's, that's, that's over 30 teaspoons of sugar. And I guarantee you that right now, if I were to get a teaspoon of sugar and have any of you take it, you would probably gag because it's so sickeningly sweet. But once you mix it in this frothy mixture, then it goes down much easier. And that would be something I would, I would drink quite often. Uh, I love my, my Happy Meals from McDonald's, Funyuns, you know, Typical processed food. Um, I loved getting Wendy's Frosties from the the drive-through on, on Friday nights after eating after going out to eat. Banana splits were my favorite dessert, uh, and Saturday morning cartoons. That was that was my uh, that was where you would find me on Saturday mornings. I, I guess I turned out okay. All things, my mom and dad did a really good job. <laughs> But that period of my life, in a way, I'm thankful for it because what it did is it got me very interested in nutrition. I took a lot of wrong detours along the way. So in the 80s was the whole low-fat diet. So you know, I began to focus on how many grams of fat were in a food item but not realizing that you can eat very highly processed foods that have tons of added sugar but zero grams of fat. So that's not ideal. Um, I took a detour at the Mediterranean diet, which has a lot of good health properties. um, But one of the issues with that is there's not really a restriction on olive oil. And in a nation where 7 out of 10 U.S. adults are either overweight or obese, um, having sort of limitless amounts of olive oil can be detrimental considering that oil is the most calorically dense food on planet Earth at 4,000 calories per pound. Compare that to broccoli, which is going to be under 100 calories per pound. Um, many people have uh, gone for the low-carb dietary uh, fad. Uh, and during med school and residency, I was actually a huge proponent of that because we were not necessarily taught dietary nutrition principles during uh, med school and residency. And so I still remember sitting after waiting uh, waiting till clinic finished and meeting with patients to spend extra time talking to them about how for breakfast they could have bacon and eggs just hold the toast. So there's a lot of, and I think this is one of the challenges out there, is there's a lot of misinformation that exists. And it's hard, I feel um, compassion for, for my patients because it's difficult for them to sort through truth versus fiction. Well, my aha moment came in 2014 when I was watching PBS. And this is a picture of me with uh, Dr. Joel Furman, who is a pioneer in the plant-based nutrition field. And I saw Dr. Furman come on screen, and he mentioned these words, whole food, plant-based, which this was 2014 was after I'd finished my medical training. It was the first time I had ever heard those words. And when, he, when I was watching him on PBS, he made these, outrageous claims about the power of a whole food, plant-based diet to not just prevent but actually reverse many of the chronic illnesses that I had been seeing in my patients, like diabetes and high blood pressure, but it piqued my interest. I went to the public library in San Francisco, checked out the book Eat to Live. I subsequently watched a documentary that I'd highly recommend to all of you called Forks Over Knives, and I have not looked back since. If anything, each year that I see new studies come out and read more books and uh, gain additional knowledge and information, it only reinforces and further affirms that this way of eating is an optimal way to eat, and and we're going to go into that. As as medical director of the McDougall program, um, what you saw with Robert, I see now with countless patients. This is Josh, who I took care of a few years ago, and this is him one year later, over 100 pounds lighter, off of all his reflux medication. And I'll never forget, he told me that before coming to uh, work with uh, the McDougal program, he had trouble playing football with his son. Um, And now he's able to run around in the park, throw the football around, and it's really um, increased his sense of joy that he's experiencing in life. This is Jason and Sarah Ramos, uh, who I took care of as well. Um, and Jason shared with me that uh, as a truck driver, he ate what was convenient. And so his diet consisted of sheet cakes, ice cream, pizza, chicken wings, and hamburgers. Very much square in the standard American diet. A few years after transitioning to a whole food plant-based diet, they are leading a transformed life. So really, I think a picture, as my mom and dad said, a picture says a thousand words. I think this picture really captures it. That, and I first saw this back in 2015 when I saw Dr. D- Dean Ornish, who is another pioneer. Many of you have heard of him, maybe read his books. He shared a, a slide very similar to this that showed um, what you see here: as two doctors mopping up the floor. And in some ways, this is what it feels like within the medical system at times, that we're we're mopping up the floor with medications and surgeries and referrals and procedures, with there being one big problem, which is that the faucet is going on full blast, as you can see in the background. So we're not actually addressing the root cause. We're treating symptoms. We're making numbers look better. And in some cases we're helping to improve conditions, but we're not addressing the root cause. And I really do believe that through changing one's food and one's nutrition that you are taking a step towards turning off the faucet. So the agenda for the rest of our time together is what is a whole food plant-based diet? I really want it to feel simple and not complicated. And I hope by the end that you will feel that way. Why should I adopt this way of eating? We could spend an entire week going over the studies and the evidence that support this. Um, for the sake of today, we'll, we'll go over just a couple of, some of my favorite studies. And how can I get started? How do we make this actionable? Knowledge without action in some ways is useless. So we want to translate this into meaningful steps that we can take. All right, so what is a whole food plant-based diet? Anyone know who this is? I see Matt in the background. Yep. Michael Pollan. Yes, that's right. Michael Pollan. Uh, he is a food author and journalist. He wrote a, a book, In Defense of Food, and Eater's Manifesto. He also wrote Omnivore's Dilemma. And he's since moved on from food to He's now interested in the area of psychedelics. Um, but he's very famous for seven words that to me captures the essence of how all of us ideally would eat for the rest of our lives. Seven words. Eat food. Now by food, he means food that is in as close to its natural state as possible. So food, he says, food that grows on a plant, not food that is made in a plant, oh. <laughs> right? Unprocessed foods, yeah. Yeah. food that your great-great-grandmother would recognize as food. Some of our current creations like go right? You know, yogurt that's got a lot of additives in it. It's, it's not, it's almost like, kind of like food, but not real food, not too much. Again, this may seem obvious, but we don't really do a good job of this. How often do you see people walking away from restaurants or you've experienced yourself, or maybe on a cruise, or even just a home-cooked meal, where you feel stuffed, right? Actually to the point of uncomfortable. And so not too much is actually, to me, an invitation to increase one's mind-body connection, to actually check in with yourself to eat slower. Uh, In Japan, they call it harahachibu, which means eat until you're 80% full. So it's eat until you're satiated, till you're comfortable, not until you're stuffed. You could eat more, but you don't actually need to eat more. And then last, mostly plants. And I love this adjective, mostly, because to me, that is the invitation. I tell my patients from day one that there's not a single food I'm going to tell you to give up for the rest of your life, including Krispy Kreme donuts. Or <laughs> what you just imagine in your head for a moment, the, the most unhealthy food you can possibly think of. And I'll say, I'm not going to tell you to stop that. Because I really believe it's not actually the Kentucky Fried Chicken or the Krispy Kreme Donut or even the double, the double I, Whopper burger that is the problem. I believe it's our relationship with these foods that is the problem. If I had a Krispy Kreme Donut right here, I, I might even take a bite just to prove it to you. But if I was eating that a dozen a day, my relationship with that has become distorted, right? And that's when it becomes problematic. So this is why I love talking about this is because wherever you're at, that's okay. We can meet you there and then just ask yourself, what does it look like to take one step in a healthier direction? And doesn't that feel so much more inviting than feeling like, oh, I can't do that. Whatever that means, Usually I say, I was just asking you to eat less processed foods and fewer animal products and more fruits and vegetables. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. I can do that. So eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Whether I'm giving a presentation to physicians, like a few months ago when I gave a talk at the American Academy of Family Physicians inaugural lifestyle medicine conference with over 130 family docs. I showed this slide. Or my kids, when I was giving lectures in their second grade class and was invited to be a guest speaker, I show this slide. Because I really do think that health is about simplicity. It's not complicated. Under this whole food plant-based paradigm, these are the new four food groups that you're predominantly eating from. Fruits, vegetables, Legumes, so beans, peas, lentils, and whole grains, oatmeal, brown rice, quinoa. My Most people, when they think of whole grains, the the whole grain that comes to mind is wheat. But for the first time just last week, I ate wheat in a way I've never eaten before, wheat berries. It's actually the... You know the actual wheat grain before they've ground it up into flour, and it was absolutely delicious. You can almost use it as sort of like a rice and put whatever you want on top of it. And there you're eating it in an even less processed form than whole grain bread. So my world of whole grains and legumes has, has opened up greatly uh, since embarking on this journey. I put an honorable mention for nuts and seeds because that absolutely is part of it. Um, I just put a little bit of caution because it is a very calorically dense food. And so many of my patients come trying to lose weight. And so, you know, if they think that nuts and seeds is a core group, they might go to Costco, buy a bin, and eat it in front of the television thinking they're doing right by themselves. But anything in excess, especially seeds and nuts, can become problematic. So usually I tell my patients about one, maybe two ounces of nuts and seeds a day. So here's just some typical meals. Um, this is what I had for uh, breakfast this morning, steel-cut um, steel oats, and I'll usually put mashed banana in it for sweetness so that I don't have to put any added sugar. Um, I put frozen blueberries, whatever fruit I have on hand, lots of soups. Um, raise your hand if you have an Instant Pot. Anyone here? Okay, so a few people have an Instant Pot. It's one of my favorite pressure cooker tools, and I just... Throw whatever vegetables and grains I have in, in the cupboard or the fridge and out comes a new creation each time. Uh, lots of uh, gorgeous salads. Um, and then here's a typical plate where you got rice and chickpeas uh, and a, a vegetable medley. As mentioned, I do give lectures at Kaiser Permanente in Santa Rosa. And Kaiser is, really, Kaiser is the largest managed care organization in the entire United States. And more and more Kaiser doctors and health professionals are really embracing a whole food plant-based diet to the point that they've made this graphic of what a sort of quintessential plant-based plate for lunch or dinner might look like, where you see half the plate as some sort of grain, in this case quinoa, uh, black beans, and then um, half the plate filled with various vegetables. And then fruit is nature's candy. So 90% of the time, fruit is my dessert. The other 10% is special occasions. And again, it's not, this is not a diet of, in my mind, restriction where I can't do this, I can't do that. Again, if you bring it back to that word relationship, it's just asking yourself, how do I improve my relationship with certain foods and get more of the healthier ones and less of the less healthy ones? This is, hot off the press, my dad's creation from three hours ago. It's, in fact, it's digesting in my stomach right now. There are 11 different vegetables and legumes in this creation. I think, just to list some of them off, we've got carrots, uh, we have cabbage, we have tofu, tomatoes. Uh, he put okra in it, bell peppers, garlic. Um, and uh, did not add any salt, to, you know, the vegetables really just infuse it with a, with a beautiful taste. It takes, it, we call it taste neuroadaptation. In other words, maybe the first time you eat lower salt or lower sodium, it, it tastes like bland to you, but you would be surprised that over time, your taste buds really do neuroadapt, and nowadays, what seems bland to someone else will be, for me, very salty. So you just have to give your, your body time. It was absolutely delicious, by the way. I'm board certified by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and this is a body of health professionals across specialties. So we have cardiology, pulmonology, psychiatry, we've got nursing, dietitians. Um, and it's a really well-known, reputable organization um, that also stands behind a plant-based diet. Uh, They put out their own graphic of what a healthy plate might look like with a lot of different options, Um, and I want to read you this from their their site. Whole food diets that are either predominantly plant-based or completely plant-based are naturally higher in most under-consumed nutrients calcium, magnesium, potassium, iron, vitamins A, C, D, and E, choline, and fiber, and lower in over-consumed nutrients, added sugars, saturated fat, and sodium. Adequate, listen closely, because this is the big question that I always get, adequate protein intakes are easily achieved eating a whole food, completely plant-based diet. And this was in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine Key Points for Practitioners. This is Annalisa Lim. She's my niece, and she is sorry she can't be here today. She originally was going to come up to an, uh, present a few slides on this big question of can you get adequate protein. Um, but one of the slides she prepared, so this is, uh, this is my beautiful niece, Annalisa, with her, her gorgeous uh, plant-based lunch that she has. And she prepared this slide just showing that many top athletes... These are people you recognize. Have you ever heard of Tom Brady? (laughs) Have you heard of Novak Djokovic? Have you heard of Venus Williams? Yes. Have you heard of Chris Paul? Some of you? Yeah. These are famous professional players at the top of their game who have made the transition in the last few years to a plant-based diet because they want to be at the peak performance and the more that they're learning, and the more that they're experiencing for themselves, the more convinced they are. So the, another movie, which you'll see a slide later, uh, that came out in the last few years is called Game Changers. And it's all about top athletes that are eating completely plant-based. They do not worry about whether they are getting adequate protein intakes. So her her take-home slide, which I wanted to show, is can a whole food plant-based diet provide enough protein? Yes. (laughs) Make sure to eat a varied diet and focus on food quality. Uh, I have now been medical director of the McDougal program for eight years, and in my entire eight years, I have yet to see a single patient who has been eating a healthy, balanced, plant-based diet who I say is protein deficient. Another way of looking uh, at uh, whole food plant bases is through a pyramid. And this is from Dr. Furman, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, And here you see vegetables, fruits, seeds, nuts, and avocados at the base of the pyramid, whole grains and potatoes. But notice, things like eggs, oil, fish, wild or naturally raised animal products and dairy, even commercially raised meats, sweets, cheese, and processed foods, he has a place for them on the pyramid. It's just in that sliver, so that if you don't feel inclined or wanting to go 100%, that's okay. Again, we can meet you where you're at and just ask you, what does it look like to take the next step? I oftentimes get the question, what's the difference between vegan versus whole food plant-based? Um, for one thing, vegan is 100%, right? So absolutely no animal products. But the other thing is vegan doesn't necessarily pay Close attention to whether it 's processed or unprocessed it 's just whether it's you know animal based or not or plant-based so you could actually eat many vegan foods that are highly processed and definitely not healthy for you, for example, white bread and i can 't believe it 's not butter uh, fruit loops've many of you have heard or even tried for yourself the impossible burger um, it is. I will say it is very tasty, but I would not say that it is healthy for you. French fries are vegan. Coke is vegan. And Oreo cookies are vegan. So it's just to say that if someone says, oh, I'm eating a vegan diet, that does not necessarily mean it's a healthy diet, right? Many vegan diet, many uh, friends and colleagues and patients of mine who are vegan do eat a healthy diet, but it does not necessarily mean that they are doing so. So it is important to understand the the subtle distinction. Okay, so I think you have a good idea. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains predominantly. No food, am I going to say, you have to ever give up for the rest of your life unless you choose to, right? Okay, well, do you have any evidence? Why should I adopt this way of eating? I gave you a few um, stories of patients that have had great results. Uh, but I want to say, for one thing, if we were doing well as a nation in terms of our health, we wouldn't, I wouldn't even need to be up here talking about why we need to change our diet. But let's look at, just briefly, some statistics. Over two-thirds of the nation, as I mentioned, seven out of ten American adults are either overweight or obese, of all U.S. adults either have pre-diabetes or diabetes. And every 52 seconds, one male or female adult in the United States has died from cardiovascular disease. And when you look then at what is it that we are eating to contribute to these poor outcomes and poor statistics, this is what our current standard American diet looks like. 63% of the caloric intake of the average American comes from processed foods, added fats, oils, sugars, refined grains, things like white bread, things like Oreo cookies, things like um, uh, potato chips, right? Entenmann's uh, brownies, things that come in a package predominantly. 25% come from animal foods, meat, dairy, eggs, fish, seafood. And only 12% come from actual plant food. Except that when you take out certain things like ketchup or tomato sauce that comes on pizza, it really works out to only about 6% of the American diet comes from calories that come from whole plant foods. So you can understand now maybe why we have such a, uh, as some people term it, a diabetes, diabetes and obesity epidemic where heart disease is the number one killer of men and women in the United States and now, thanks to the exportation of our way of eating across the world, worldwide. We have fast food on every corner. You, you go to Best Buy and you check out and you see candy as you're, as you're uh, paying for, for your goods. Uh, this was a picture I took at the Sonoma County Fair, which is, I live up in Sonoma County, where it's, I saw this sign and I almost did a double take. Home of the Krispy Kreme burger. So no longer is a, a burger adequate. We have to wrap the beef patty with not one but two Krispy Kreme donuts to make it have sort of enough uh, sort of titillation to, to, to grab us. And then right next to there, for dessert, you don't just get Oreos. You get deep-fried Oreos. You don't just get a Snickers bar. You get deep-fried Snickers bar. Marshmallow Pops, right? And the lines for these are long, by the way. This is a picture, it's from a book uh, called Hungry Planet, where the author and the uh, photographer went all the way around the world to various countries visiting a typical family and what they eat in one week. Um, and uh, this family, this, this was their week's worth of, of uh, groceries where you see a lot of fast food, a lot of animal products, more fast food, more processed food, more sugary drinks, some diet drinks, a lot of milk. Oh, and then right small amount in the center, you actually have that five to six percent, right, of whole plant food. You've got two tomatoes here and, and some grapes, but right? Just surrounded in a sea of animal products and processed food. Well, not to worry because with these health issues, We've got medications, right? So now, you, now we kind of circle back to, remember that word I used at the beginning for my paradigm for the care of patients up until learning about the power of food was management, right? So I learned how to use medications and referrals for procedures uh, in order to manage their conditions. Well, here's one study, I think, that really sheds light on just how powerful a whole food plant-based diet is. Uh, this was done by Dr. Shintani, who um, uh, lives in Hawaii on the Big Island, and uh, it was entitled Obesity and Cardiovascular Risk Intervention Through the Ad Libitum. Now, ad libitum means as much as you want, basically. At liberty. Ad libitum feeding of a traditional Hawaiian diet. He was very troubled, Dr. Shintani, he's a family doctor by training, good friends with Dr. McDougall, and he was very troubled that native Hawaiians used to be the healthiest, leanest, fittest group in the Hawaiian Islands. And then over the decades, they had become less and less healthy, more and more obese, more and more diabetes, more and more cardiovascular disease. And as he was puzzling the scientist and doctor that he is over what could be the root cause, he reached the inescapable conclusion that it must be the change in diet, with more spam, with more fast food, right? The spam is a very famous, it's the, you know, the, I think they call it wasubi. It's like you spam with the rice and the sea, seaweed, um, fast food. So he thought, why not put native Hawaiians on their native Hawaiian diet? That's things like taro, which is a starchy vegetable, poi, which is liquefied taro, breadfruit, another starchy fruit, papaya, sweet potato, sweet potato leaves. It was foods like this that for three weeks, he fed a group of over 20 native Hawaiians who all struggled with morbid obesity. He let them eat as much of these foods as they wanted. There was no limit. Whenever they were were hungry, they were allowed to eat from these. Well, here are the results after three weeks. First, their total caloric intake decreased by over 1,000 calories, despite being able to eat as much as they wanted. That was a 40% change. On average, their weight dropped by 17 pounds, from 264 to 247 pounds. This was, again, three weeks. Their body mass index, which is a measure of your weight relative to your height, dropped from 40 down to 37 this is how we say someone is either overweight, obese, or morbidly obese. BMIs between 18.5 to 25 is considered a normal weight. 25 to 30 is overweight, 30 to 35, obese, and 35 and higher, morbidly obese. So as you can see, all of these native Hawaiians who took part in this study were met criteria for morbid obesity. Their total cholesterol dropped from 222 down to 191 for a 14% decrease. Their LDL levels, which is the bad uh, cholesterol, dropped by 12%. Their triglycerides dropped 42% in three weeks. FBS stands for fasting blood sugar. On average, their fasting blood sugar was 162 milligrams per deciliter and dropped 24% to an average of 123 Now, what's interesting here is the criteria for diagnosis of diabetes, one of them is a fasting blood sugar of 126 or higher. So on an average, as a group, they went from meeting criteria for diabetes to falling just below that diabetic threshold. Their systolic blood pressure, the higher number, dropped by 12 points or 9%, and their diastolic blood pressure dropped by 9 points or 11%. Basically, across the board they experienced significant benefits. And this doesn't even take into account the anecdotal improvements in terms of symptoms from arthritis, asthma, gastritis, fatigue, acne, headaches, impotence. They felt better, right? Not only were their numbers better, but they felt better. And it's it's this subjective feeling that also drives the continued healthy dietary behavior and change. A whole-food, plant-based diet is the only way of eating that has ever actually shown the ability to reverse heart disease, which, as I I mentioned, is the number one killer of men and women in the United States and globally. And the one who really sort of showed the potential for this is Dr. Dean Ornish, who I mentioned earlier. He is a professor of medicine at UCSF. Uh, He's famous for this lifestyle heart trial um, and he was on the cover of Newsweek, actually, for his work in this area. And this was back in the 1980s to early 90s, where he took RCT stands for Randomized controlled Trial. It's sort of considered the gold standard of medical research because he took 48 patients with moderate to severe CAD, which stands for coronary artery disease or heart disease, and he, random, he took half of them and put them on the American Heart Association diet. So they continued to receive care from the cardiologist and ate sort of an AHA, American Heart Association healthy diet. The other half of the group, he put on a whole food plant-based diet with other lifestyle changes like meeting in a group on a regular basis, so connecting with each other, um, thinking about stress reduction, and getting some moderate exercise. What I appreciated about his approach, because he has since gone on to replicate this intervention in other areas, including prostate cancer, including Alzheimer's, and he does not change the intervention. It is a multi-part intervention that includes not just a whole-food, plant-based diet, but these other aspects of movement, stress reduction, uh, and connection with each other. So his, uh, his goal was to determine the effect of comprehensive lifestyle change without the use of cholesterol-lowering uh, drugs on heart disease and cardiac events. What you see here is that it was, there was one uh, endpoint at one year and then again at five years. So in the control group, the group that was on the AHA diet, what this represents is the percentage of stenosis or percentage of narrowing of their coronary arteries. And so you see here that on average it increased over the five years from 40.7% up to 42.3% up to 51.9%. This is very much what we expect That the longer you live, the the older you get, the more standard American dietary foods you eat, right, that your stenosis or your narrowing will gradually worsen over time. What was really neat to see is that in the intervention group, it's not that the percentage of stenosis went to zero because there is a certain amount of plaque that blocks the arteries that almost becomes sort of like scar tissue, right, so it's just not going to go away. But there's also what's called soft plaque, and that's really where there's possibility for, for improvement. And so what we actually see is that the average in the intervention group went from 41% blockage down to 385 down to 37.3%. So in total, the amount of narrowing improved by 8% over five years in the intervention group, and in contrast, it worsened by 28% in the control group. In terms of things that we think about, like actual cardiac events, the control group was about two and a half times more likely to experience a cardiac event than the experimental group over the five-year study. And events are defined as things like heart attack, uh, angioplasty, where they um, thread a catheter through and oftentimes will put a a stent to help open up the arteries. Uh, Things like cabbage or bypass surgery, Uh, cardiac hospitalizations and cardiac deaths. Again, the AHA or control group was two and a half times more likely to experience these complications or these events than the intervention group. And then what is also interesting is to note that it's not an all or nothing proposition. And this really is one of the major points that I want everyone to come away with, is that You don't have to go all the way. Whatever you can do at this stage after this talk in in a healthier direction, let's start there. Because what we see is that even the least adherent group still had some benefit in, in terms of the stenosis. But the people who did the most had the most benefit. So I have seen the case where sometimes some people are not ready to make a big change, but they're ready to make a little one, and I'm like, I'll take it. And then they do that for a bit, I'm like, oh, that soon becomes easy, and now, now they're ready to make a bigger change. And so it's sort of meeting people where they're at at that season of their life and encouraging them in that space. This is Dr. Esselstyn. He has sort of added to this concept of reversal of heart disease through a plant-based diet through his own research He's a surgeon at Cleveland Clinic, and he worked with a small group of patients. This is the actual angiogram from one of the patients uh, that he worked with, the distal LAD, the left anterior descending artery. And you can see how it kind of gets a little narrow towards the end. This is called the widowmaker artery for a reason. Well, three years later, after eating a plant-based diet, I don't know if you can tell, but it has opened up considerably. And so one of the books I highly recommend that you look at, especially if uh, heart disease affects a family member or yourself, is, this, is his book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. This is Dr. Kim Williams. I want, to, I want you also to realize that this is more mainstream than you might think. Dr. Kim Williams is the former president of the American College of Cardiology. He's currently a head of cardiology department at Rush University Medical Center. So he's very much in mainstream medicine. And when years ago he learned about the power of a whole food plant-based diet just like me, he has now since come out and said things like this. Wouldn't it be a laudable goal of the American College of Cardiology to put ourselves out of business? That's not my quote. That is his quote. There are two kinds of cardiologists, vegans and those who haven't read the data. (laughs) So he is a huge proponent of a plant-based diet. He has adopted it himself. He's a big tennis player. Uh, He's actually a former professional tennis player, and he has experienced the benefits in his own personal life. He thought that his high cholesterol was genetic because it runs in the family. So if you have that narrative in your head, oh, I have this because it runs in the family. There is a saying, okay, genes loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. So yes, you may have a predisposition towards heart disease or um, towards stroke or towards some autoimmune, but don't underestimate the power of radical lifestyle change to make it so that those genetics never fully express themselves. I have seen it again and again and again. And Dr. Williams had that aha moment where he realized that his genetic history did not determine his fate. He has since seen a significant drop in his cholesterol to optimal numbers and seen how lifestyle really uh, overcame his uh, genetic makeup. I saw this study when I I still remember, I went to the Plantrition Plant Based Conference back in 2015 with my dad. And I remember Dr. Michael Greger, who is another very famous um, pioneer within this plant-based field, putting this study up on the screen, and I, my jaw just dropped, because diabetic neuropathy is something that I had seen so much in clinic and felt so helpless to treat. I mean, I would, you know, I could offer them, you know, various medications like gabapentin or um, you know, uh, amitriptyline, and maybe at best it could reduce their pain level or their discomfort level from like a eight to a five. It never fully eliminated it, and inevitably they would experience side effects. So when he showed me this study where 21 patients with type two diabetes and neuropathy and an average age of 64, went to a 25-day residential program with a low-fat, high-fiber, vegetarian diet, essentially a whole-food, plant-based diet of unrefined foods and conditioning exercise. Here were the results. Complete, not partial, complete 100% relief of neuropathy in 17 of 21 patients within four to 16 days. I had never seen that happen in one of my neuropathic patients. 17 out of 21 with no medication and just eating a healthy plant-based diet and getting some exercise. What was interesting and what I really appreciated about this is they followed up. Um, They followed up with these same 17 patients uh, four years later, four years later. And of the 17, all of them except one continued to have 100% relief of their neuropathy and the one who had some partial relapse, it still was much better than, than original. It just wasn't complete. This only captures their improvements in neuropathy, but many came off diabetic medications, lost weight, lowered blood pressure, all those things that I showed you in the Hawaiian study from Dr. Shintani earlier. This is Jose. I just, this is a picture I just took on Wednesday, no, Tuesday of this week. I said, Jose, I got, I've got to capture this because your story is just too good to tell. I just saw Jose in May. He was on the kidney transplant list with a creatinine, which is a measure of kidney function, of six over six. And normal creatinine is less than one. So his doctor basically said, you're, you're headed for transplant. On top of that, he had uncontrolled diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C, which is what's considered an average of your blood sugars for the last two to three months. 6.5% is the criteria for diagnosis of, of diabetes. His hemoglobin A1C had gotten as high as 10.9%, which is considered poor control. I saw Jose Tuesday. His creatinine was 204 down from 6.96 and where he was needing to be on the transplant list. It has improved remarkably. On top of that, his most recent hemoglobin A1C, remember what I said was the threshold for diagnosis? 6.5%. His hemoglobin A1C is 4.7%. On top of that, he was on 18 to 20 units of long acting insulin with, I think, 5 to 10 units of short-acting insulin with each meal when I saw him. Guess how much he's on now? Zero. So he has, a, he has a hemoglobin A1c that is well below not only the threshold for diabetes, the threshold for prediabetes, with no medication, with kidney function that essentially has gotten him off the, the kidney transplant list, and off two of his blood pressure medications that he came in on. You see why it's one of the best jobs I could have in the world. I basically have a front row seat to seeing these sort of miraculous transformations occur before my eyes on a weekly basis. The blue zones is just a concept, I'm not gonna go in great depth, but I just want you to be aware of that. Uh, uh, Blue zones are areas around the world that have been identified as places where people live past the age of 100 to a much greater percentage than other areas of the world. So Dan Buettner, who uh, wrote a very famous article for National Geographic, he identified five blue zones uh, that include Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, Italy, um, Loma Linda, California, that has a high percentage of Seventh-day Adventists, the Nicoya Peninsula uh, in Costa Rica, and um, Sardinia, I think Sardinia, there's one other. Basically, he interviewed over 250 centenarians from these five blue zones and found what they shared in common, and he distilled it down to these power principles, what he calls these nine power principles, and top among them was that all of them ate a whole food plant-based diet where 90% or more of their caloric intake came from those four food groups, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. Most of them were not vegan. Most of them still had some animal products, whether it was goat's milk or in, in Loma Linda, some of them will eat salmon, uh, some of them enjoy yogurt. But the point is that, again, it's the relationship. They weren't eating huge amounts of it. If they did have meat, it was the condiment. It wasn't necessarily breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He actually has a new book that's just coming out um, uh, it's already out, and so if you're interested, I would definitely recommend it. And, in fact, I've just heard, I haven't seen it, but on Netflix uh, right now, there is a four- or five-part documentary where Dan Butner actually goes to these Blue Zones and interviews them and, and shows you these lives that they're leading. By the way, you remember me earlier mentioning Harahachibu, right? That is one of these nine power principles. I have a whole separate talk on the Blue Zones, In fact, I was just invited, I just learned um, this past week, I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Southern California Kaiser Wellness Conference in 2024 to talk on life lessons learned from the blue zones. So really, this is just the tip of the iceberg. As I mentioned, there is study after study looking at all manner of conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriasis, gout. You name the health condition, there is likely now a major study that looks at the benefits of a plant-based diet to- for these conditions. But I think you get an idea of the huge amount of evidence and support uh, for this way of eating. So with the last few minutes, I want to bring this to a close, but I just want us to start thinking, how can I get started down, down this path? And I think step one is to keep learning, right? If, if this is the first time you 've been introduced to this, then there is so much more uh, to learn and I you know whether you like videos, I recommend Forks over Knives. Uh, it is the defining documentary of, of the whole food plant based movement. Game Changers uh, is another great movie um, that uh, talks about athletes and their transition to plant based diet and the incredible performance uh, gains that they 're experiencing. They profile the Tennessee Titans on this film um, and show how the um, defensive line for one year really just went all in with this and and that was the year that they made the the playoffs. (laughs) Um, If you like to read, I mentioned that book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease and How Not to Die, Dr. Michael Greger, he is kind of considered the guru when it comes to sharing the studies. So if you you like to see the data uh, you can just go to his website even, nutritionfacts.org. You just type in any search term uh, for any illness that you're interested in learning about, and he likely will have a short video with references uh, that you can look at. It's, it's a great resource, and this book, How Not to Die, is, is a classic. Um, if you'd like to actually see uh, the research, this was a great overview article, Nutritional Update for Physicians, Plant-Based Diets. It's one of the most read articles that's been put out by the Kaiser Permanente Journal um, and gives a great overview of uh, plant-based diet as well as some of the evidence and benefits of it. And then um, I mentioned the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and um, there's also the International Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference. They hold conferences every year uh, where you can just meet other people um, who are either doing this lifestyle or preaching this lifestyle or sharing it or Uh, imparting it to others, and it's a very um, sort of enthusiastic, contagious, uh, exciting atmosphere to be a part of. Step two, at some point, you got to stop looking from the sidelines, right? And you just got to, you either have to dip your toes or jump in and try it yourself. Um, This book, The Whole Foods Diet, written by John Mackey, who's the former CEO of Whole Foods, it's a really good book uh, good, gives a great introduction um, to a plant-based diet and also has a nice uh, dietary plan to follow um, at the back of the book. Uh, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, they have a uh, 21-day kickstart program um, that you can try, uh, and they outline the recipes and what, what you can do. Um, Mark Bittman, many of you have heard of him. Uh, he's a famous chef, Uh, and and also an author, and he wrote this book, VB6, Vegan Before Six, because he had that doctor's visit where the doctor said, look, you're overweight, your blood pressure is high, cholesterol is high, if we don't make changes, we've got to get you on medication. That's when he learned about plant-based diet, but he said, I don't think I can go all the way, but I think that all the way up until dinner, I can be 100%. And then at dinner, if I want to have a small amount of whatever it is that it is that he's craving, whether it's salmon or something like that, then he was gonna permit himself and allow himself. And uh, so I think uh, VB6, that's what it stands for, vegan before six, and I think that's a a great book as well. Uh, My own mentor, Dr. John McDougall, uh, one of his well-known books is called The Starch Solution. He's a huge proponent of all the foods that people are scared of. Potatoes, brown rice, carbs, right? and he really uh, sort of demystifies it and shows that starch and and these starchy vegetables and starchy grains is really our fuel and what keeps us satiated and happy and really is what makes a plant-based diet a sustainable lifestyle, not one where, I mean, trust me, you don't feel hungry all the time when you eat this because you're eating things like beans and brown rice and sweet potatoes and potatoes, all right, so, so the starch solution is another great resource. Make sure to talk to your doctor if you are on medications because this can be incredibly effective. So you can imagine if you're taking, I had one person who came who was on over 200 units of insulin combined. By the time that they left the program, they were under 50 units of insulin. So you can imagine what would have happened if I kept him on over 200 units of insulin he could have had a severe hypoglycemic or low blood sugar event and that it it can be very dangerous. So you absolutely, if you're going to go do this and you're on blood pressure medication or you're on diabetic medication, you you do not want to do it unsupervised. And then the last thing, and again, this is a whole nother talk of mine, is don't forget that nutrition and all that we've talked about today is just one piece of the puzzle, This is one of the slides that I show in my talk that I give through the McDougall program on behavioral change. And I always like to make sure that people keep in mind the big picture. That everyone I've met, they're all after optimal health, but we have to remember that health is not distilled down to any single aspect of our life. It is really the collective whole. And so yes, I've put nutrition at the top and I put it in red because that's what we've talked about today and it is absolutely critical for a healthy lifestyle. But let's just not forget all these other aspects. The physical activity and movement. Um, If you had a video camera on me this last week, you would have seen me running up mountains and jumping into lakes. That's where I'm I'm out in nature, swimming and frolicking. That physical movement is an absolutely essential part of my well-being and, and overall health. Stress reduction. I would say that this is the big, big deal because so many of my patients eat for emotional reasons and eat out of stress. So I could talk till I'm blue in the face about, hey, I want you to eat oatmeal for breakfast and minestrone soup for lunch. But if they're dealing with a divorce or they're dealing with being let go of their job or they're dealing with COVID or they're dealing with the political situation and and their fears around that, they may not be registering even what I'm saying because they're in sort of this fight or flight mentality. So in that case, I may say, forget about diet right now. Let's attend to your stress in your life. Let's attend to your mental, emotional well-being. And then when the time is right, then let's get diet. But if you try to take on too much all at once, that could be a recipe for feeling like a failure. Um, your physical environment, you know, the, how, how organized is it? How peaceful is it? Um, meaningful connection, right? just uh, your friends, your families a sense of purpose and meaning, spirituality, right? I mean, I know in my own life, my Christian faith has been the most transformative force in my entire life. And so if I was to leave that off the table and focus on food, I would be missing a huge part of what my journey to health and wellness has been. Avoidance of unhealthy behaviors: excess alcohol consumption, excess Instagram consumption, uh, excess uh, or, or tobacco smoking, right? Can excess cannabis use or whatever you know those behaviors that you know there's some addictive component to it, and it's not taking you in a healthy direction. And then last, sleep. Restorative sleep is essential. I could give a lecture on each one of these because they're that important but I want you to just to keep in mind the whole picture and that they're all interconnected. As you make a healthy change in one area, it has this beneficial impact that filters down to all the other areas. In summary, to bring it to a close, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. If, you, if we called my daughter up right now, I'd say, Julia, what's this, what are the seven words? And she would recite it right back to you. It's just, it's in her, in her head. A whole food plant-based diet, Four food groups, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, small amount of uh, nuts and seeds. This is the one way of eating that truly addresses the root cause of chronic medical conditions, such as coronary artery disease and type 2 diabetes. And in terms of next action steps, includes continued learning, trying it out for yourself, and keeping in mind all the various aspects of your whole person health. I would just want to end with these uh, last two quotes. This is from that nutrition update for physicians uh, from Permanente Journal that I mentioned. If we are to slow down the obesity epidemic and reduce the complications of chronic disease, we must consider changing our culture's mindset from live to eat, to eat to live. The future of healthcare will involve an evolution toward a paradigm where the prevention and treatment of disease is centered not on a pill or surgical procedure, but on another, servings of, on another serving of fruits and vegetables. And to end with Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, he put it best, and it's the title of this talk Let Food Be Thy Medicine, and Medicine Be Thy Food. Thank you. Okay, so uh, one question is, do you see any role for eggs and dairy in the diet? Um, I'll, yeah, I'll briefly address each of these. Um, many of the studies on eggs have been funded by the egg industry, and there definitely has been shown to be some bias in terms of downplaying some of the negative um, Uh, outcomes of excess egg intake. So do I think that you can never eat an egg or anything like that? No, I don't. But the research has shown that eating excess eggs is associated with increased cardiovascular disease, and is associated with increased mortality, and absolutely can lead to increased cholesterol levels, which is one of the main drivers of cardiovascular disease. So I think that having eggs as kind of Um, Like, for example, if someone told me I'm having two scrambled eggs for breakfast every day versus I'm having steel cut oatmeal for breakfast every day, hands down, I can show plenty of evidence to show that the steel cut oatmeal uh, would be a a better choice. But if they wanted to have that egg on Sunday brunch uh, as a sort of a, a special treat, I'd say fine. Let's, that, let's go ahead, and if at some point you decide to change that, then we can revisit it. If, if the numbers aren't quite where you like them or, you, um, uh, or, or, or for some other reason health-related, we need to make a change, we can discuss it at that point. Um, in terms of dairy, uh, dairy is the number one source of saturated fat in the American diet. Um, again, it's been associated with cardiovascular disease. Uh, there's associations of dairy and this high saturated fat with prostate cancer, breast cancer, and ovarian cancer. Um, Most of the world is actually lactose intolerant, so I've had many patients with um, various allergic symptoms uh, who, when they eliminate dairy, uh, experience significant health benefits. But again, do I I tell tell my patients they can never have yogurt or they can never have um, a a scoop of ice cream uh, ever again? No, I don't. Uh, when we went on our family trip to Italy, you can bet that I had a gelato. Okay. <laughs> so do you kind of see it's, it's, uh, it's not necessarily about this all or nothing, um, but it's really, again, just about eating the foods that we ha- know based on the evidence that you can consume as much as you want of without detriment and, in fact, many health benefits to focus on those and the ones that have cer- certain concerns about excess consumption leading or being associated with chronic illnesses, kind of cutting back on those. Um, what amounts do you recommend for adults of non-fat plain yogurt, eggs, and fish? I think this uh, this is another Zoom question. Um, again, all with all three of these, I would just say in my own diet, these are not. The mainstay. If you if you had a video camera, th- these would not be the things you see me eating on a daily basis. Breakfast, as I, men- I mentioned this morning, was oatmeal. Uh, lunch was that uh, that huge vegetable uh, soup. Um, but if uh, on on special occasions someone wants to uh, enjoy this, I usually don't have an objection to it, unless their health situation warrants a more extreme measure. And so, different, you know. I don't have a one-size-fits-all approach. I talk very differently to a patient who has had quadruple bypass surgery yeah. and two heart attacks who has a body mass index of 45 than I do to a 35-year-old who has a body mass index of 22 is on no medications and otherwise healthy, right? Because the one who's had two heart attacks and has a cabbage or a bypass surgery, they, they, may, they may have less of a buffer, Right? They may need to take a more extreme approach towards their eating, if they're willing, than, than, than the other individuals. So it's, it's, I, I call it a dance. I, I have a dance with each of my patients where I understand more of their health history. I understand what they're willing to do at this stage. And then we kind of take that first step and then go from there. Uh, another uh, Zoom question, does a plant-based diet help heal irritable bowel Syndrome. Um, We have had countless patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, Irritable bowel syndrome is often one of those diagnoses of exclusion, right? It's um, it's individuals who either uh, deal with severe constipation um, or severe diarrhea or mixed constipation and diarrhea. They've had colonoscopy. They've had upper endoscopy. They've had pill cameras go through. They've tried various things and they still deal with this. Um, And I would. I have had uh, many patients with IBS who have essentially had their symptoms resolve. Now, I will say that with IBS, in addition to dietary excellence, I have found that there is oftentimes a mental-emotional component as well, and so I really encourage these patients to deal with their stressors in life. And to start, I'm I'm a huge proponent of this whole mind-body awareness, to start to get curious and, and notice when certain emotions are arising for them that are uncomfortable and to start to notice, what do you do with those emotions? First off, most people aren't even aware of the emotion that's coming up. And then second off, once they even become aware of it, they're just sort of autopilot, going from that emotion to eating a pint of Haagen-Dazs, going from that emotion to zoning out in front of the television. But once you can get people to start to have this sort of meta-awareness of, uh, uh, of even what their behavior is and what their thinking is, that's the start. Because then with that then with that awareness, they can start to say, okay, I'm aware that when I feel lonely, I go to ice cream, and I feel worse after because I'm on the toilet. Okay, I've, I am now aware of this pattern. And then I ask them, where do we want to intervene? Where do we want to step into this and say let's try this out. And, and so maybe it's like, okay, when I'm aware that I feel lonely or feel depressed, rather than automatically go to the haagen here's my list of five alternate behaviors that I can engage in that are far more aligned with my vision of health going forward. I can go meditate for five minutes. I can go f- for a walk out in nature for five minutes. I can call my brother or my mom or my dad and you know talk to them about what's going on for me. I can go pray or I can go journal. All of which we, I think we would all agree would be a healthier way of working with that difficult emotion than just eating it or drowning your sorrows in whatever addictive tendency it is, whether it's alcohol, tobacco, or, or, or Instagram, or, or Facebook. Right. Can you get enough protein from a plant-based diet if your stomach cannot tolerate beans? This is a great question. Um, it's a, also on Zoom. Absolutely. Um, the you know it's I, I remember bo- I was boggled when I learned this. That just so you know, dark leafy greens are a huge source of protein, believe it or not, and that the percentage of uh, percentage of calories that come from protein in spinach and kale is between 30 to 50%. And compare that to a T-bone steak, which is like between 20 to 30%. Now, of course, a T-bone steak has a lot more calories, right? But the point is that when you're eating things that you don't typically think of as protein sources, like spinach and kale and other things like that, they all have protein. And it's, nature works in this beautiful way. I mean, I, I still remember going to the San Diego... Zoo and I saw a silverback gorilla. I did not see it eating like mice and animals. I saw it chewing on plants, right? But you know, as we look at these gorgeous animals from the animal kingdom and we don't wonder where they're getting their protein, right? They're not eating beans, they're eating leaves, they're eating plants. Um, we have many patients, especially with severe kidney disease, who cannot take beans. Um, and, uh, in because it, uh, it can sort of cause a lot of wear and tear uh, on their kidneys. But they are able to get adequate protein intake um, by focusing on the fruits, the vegetables, uh, and, and the whole grains. Uh, the price of fruits and vegetables, a Zoom question, has risen more than for processed food. How do you convince people to purchase more produce? Um, a huge tip is to buy what is local in season, Um, and you know, you don't, this people, a lot of people have this impression that this is a very expensive way of eating. I honestly think that this is one of the cheapest ways of eating that is out there. It can be very expensive, right? If you're buying, you know, really fancy, um, sort of all organic, um, you know, fruits and vegetables that have been imported from afar. Um, but I went to a Chinese grocery store last weekend and bought nine bags of beans and whole grains that cost on average $3.50 per bag. And each of these bags would be enough to feed me for probably 10, 10 meals. So we're talking about 30 cents per meal with these, and they store incredibly well. I mean, the, you know, the implications of this way of eating, not just for our own health, but when we talk about environmental health, uh, planetary health, um, it, it just it starts to become astounding. Um, feeding, you know, feeding people from around the world uh, who are going hungry, I really think that a whole food plant-based diet has a huge amount uh, of, of potential. Um, yes, ma'am. I'm curious to hear your- Yeah, I, so the question from the audience is uh, non-dairy milks and whether some are more healthy uh, than the others. Um, so non, non-dairy milks are, are great. Um, we, I, we have all of them in our home. We have almond milk, um, we have oat milk, uh, and we have soy milk. Um, soy milk is probably the one that's highest uh, in protein, um, but given that you can get all your nutrients from just a well balanced plant based diet, I usually tell patients just to find one that they enjoy, uh, that they like, and to actually go on, you know, some, do some sort of taste testing. The thing I would tell people to watch out for with plant based milks is most of them that you buy have added sugar. Um, so I was very excited when we went to Costco recently that they um, finally have a that well, that they, they have almond milk that is unsweetened um and so we just buy the carton of that and that's uh, that is what I use to at times to make my my one of my favorite breakfasts, which is overnight oats um, overnight oats is just taking whole road oats, so i basically it takes me about five minutes to make enough for our whole family for you know multiple meals just take a huge bowl, put rolled oats in it, soak it in a combination of water and un excuse me, unsweetened almond milk, take a bunch of ripe bananas and mash it and put it in there because that's what gives it the natural sweetness. Uh, and then um, some cinnamon and uh, maybe some chia seeds or um, ground flaxseed, and I just let it sit overnight. And so, you know, during the week we just, my son, my wife, my daughter, myself, we just scoop scoop it out and it's there, no, no prep required. Um, so that's what I would say about plant plant-based milks. If it it is easy to make your own, but it does take some extra time. Okay. Yes, uh, sir. Thank you for your presentation. Oh. <laughs> I Thank you. Your points about changing behavior in small steps.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: I'm curious though, you didn't talk much about medication. There's such a rationale these weight loss medications will be the prescription medication. The message seems to be you're not responsible for your lifestyle. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, so the question from the audience is about medications uh, in general and, and specifically weight loss medications. Why I'm not a fan of weight loss medications in general is because I don't feel they address root cause. And so I think that... Uh, and that I have yet to ever see a weight loss medication that comes without the potential for significant side effects. I've had quite a few patients come through my program that have had significant side effects from the weight loss, and I'm not saying that all experience. Now, that said, what is the benefit? I think that one of the most important things that I can give a patient in any encounter or that I can impart to an audience in any lecture really boils down to one word, hope, hope. The sense that there are better days ahead, that they can actually make an improvement in the quality of their life and how they are living and their overall health. And if a weight loss drug can help a patient who is feeling despair to have hope, awesome. Awesome, right? As long as I can just say, hey, if, if, you, if, if this helps you and you feel a renewed sense of hope and while taking this, you're also motivated to try and change your diet and lifestyle around, who knows? Down the road, maybe you may not need this medication anymore. But it might give them just enough of a lifeline, just enough of a little sort of nudge to give them hope, right? So I think that's the role... I also, I also believe in informed consent. So the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives. And I think that many doctors prescribe medications without fully giving informed consent. I can't tell you how many patients of mine receive stents for their chronic coronary artery disease without being told that there is no single trial that has ever shown that putting in a stent for chronic CAD improves the length of time that a patient lives. Can you believe that? In this multibillion-dollar industry, they are told, hey, you've got a 90% blockage. We've got to put multiple stents in. That's fine, but I would appreciate if they would say, just so you know, any trial that has looked, and the, there are multiple trials, COURAGE trial, most recently the ischemia trial in New England Journal of Medicine, that have looked at putting stents in or, for this chronic coronary artery disease, and not one has ever shown that it has lengthened the time that a patient lives.
1: Now, if you're having
0: an acute heart attack, I'm gonna send you to the ER, and if they need to put a stent to save your life in that acute situation, wonderful. But patients need to know that, in terms of the evidence for long term, it hasn't benefited them. So when I bring that back to weight loss drug, patients need to know that if you're taking this, the moment you get off it, every trial shows that that weight you lost through that weight loss drug is not sustainable unless you make some other lifestyle changes. It comes right back on. Yes? I prefer broccoli lettuce. The question is, um, you prefer broccoli to lettuce? I would say you go. You go without broccoli. If, if you never have another leaf of lettuce ever again and stick with broccoli, you will... Broccoli is sort of a power vegetable, just so you know. It belongs to the cruciferous family, right? So broccoli, cauliflower, um, Brussels sprouts. This is just a uh, power-packed vegetable category that has huge anti-cancer, huge antioxidant, huge uh, cardiovascular-fighting uh, properties. And so you go and keep eating that, that broccoli. I want to make sure I get this question because uh, from this gentleman. Yes. Sushi Sushi rice? Yeah. Or sushi in general. Eating sushi. I I I I would put sushi again in that. You know, I mean, it's like the blue zones, right? Remember how I said that over ninety percent. So even in Okinawa, where they enjoy uh, their fish, when they were looking at this um, this period, the vast majority of their calories came from sweet potato, right? So it's not that I think that people shouldn't eat sushi, but what if they're having sushi, you know, like every day, right? I think that that could start to become problematic. And so, uh, you know, I just encourage my patients to kind of think in that blue zones mentality where, you know, over 90% or 80, 80, 90% of their calories are coming from that fruit, vegetable, legume, and whole grain category. And so maybe it might be, for some patients, they've decreased the frequency of, of going out for sushi. Or now when they order sushi, they get a vegetable roll, and then if they really have a um, an, uh, sort of a, a craving, then they might get you know the salmon nigiri, you know, like, like two pieces of that or something, which is much better than what they were doing at the all-you-can-eat sushi bar multiple times a week in the past because they heard that fish was, was good for them. Dr. Lim, I think we have time for one more. Okay, that's Yes, ma'am. I had a bit of a shock this week, which was ongoing for a couple of weeks. I developed a pain on my my, my mid back. I went to the emergency and was told it was after a CAT scan. It was a a kidney stone. But it went away. The pain went away. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe I passed it or whatever. So I went to back the emergency and they said, oh yeah, you've got a kidney stone, but we don't think that's what it is. It's very little, or it's not lodged where it's going to cause a problem. But we don't know what it is. Okay. So then we had occasion Wednesday to have a physical. And my doctor, my HMO doctor, said we need to get a x-ray. And there they Mm. Yeah. She said you're a little overweight, and she wanted to know what i eat. And um, she said, if you, if you cut I don't drink a lot. I, I drink white like wine, but I don't drink a lot. And I think that's one of the main causes of, of that disorder. But she also said you get a lot of carbohydrates or dairy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the the question from the woman in the audience is around um, some back pain that she was experiencing uh, and uh, possibly due to a kidney stone, uh, but then later told that she had fatty liver. Um, I will just briefly comment on both. Um, kidney stones are very much a function of excess animal protein in the diet. There's... It's incontrovertible. Um, even my, you know, at Kaiser, the urologist, the handout they give in the department, and they're not a plant based department, it talks about cutting back on animal protein intake for people who have uh, suffered from kidney stones. And I've never had one, but I've heard it's from people who have born children and had a kidney stone that it's on that order of magnitude of pain. Um, So the, you know, moving to a whole food plant-based diet, we have had countless patients who have had kidney stones who have not had a kidney stone since. Um, Excellent hydration is also a cornerstone of kidney stone management. And rather than focus on some amount, I use the urine test, which is, is your urine uh, light colored? Is it clear or light yellow? If so, then you're probably hydrated well enough. If it's dark yellow, then I recommend you you drink more water. Now, fatty liver disease is fascinating. I would absolutely put that square with the type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, overweight, obesity. It is very much a function not of carbohydrates. It is a function of unhealthy carbohydrates, right? We need to start to distinguish between healthy versus unhealthy carbohydrates. There's a big difference. An Oreo cookie and brown rice are both carbohydrates, right? But... One is the path to health that is going to cure, help cure your fatty liver disease. And I don't use the word cure lightly. I use that based on experience and the studies. I've seen liver enzymes that have been over in the three digits that have gone to normal, less than 40, with the weight loss and and eating a healthy plant-based diet. So it's a function of refined carbs, okay, and unhealthy carbs. It's a function of excess fat in the diet. It's oftentimes a, fu- a function of excess dairy, because remember, when, pe- when we say dairy, a lot of dairy is ice cream, cheese, right? Cheese is one of the most consumed foods uh, in the United States. The cheese on cheeseburgers, right? We're getting, we're getting a lot of this, and those are the things that are driving the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, and the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease epidemic, which I believe, if I'm correct, has now supplanted alcohol as the number one cause of liver failure or cirrhosis. That is how serious a predicament we are in. But as you know, the good news is there is hope. And it begins with what you put on the end of your fork. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.